Okay, we're, we're going to start this podcast. Um, we're going to get into it. Anything you want me to avoid? It's like this isn't no. an expose, by the way. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm, yeah, no. Yeah, but um, but yeah, look, I just want to talk about your journey. And and the show's called Hook. And where is it? Uh, Caesars. Caesars. I thought it was Caesars. Okay. Yeah, and you know it's going to be loose. Oh, also, unfortunately, is there anything I'm, you don't want me to bring up about you? Oh, wouldn't that be amazing if it's just you turn the tables? I was like, Chad, I hear you're a widow. Or Actually, that would be great. Like, and I've also just asked you, like, what brings you joy as a clown? And you're like, well, I heard you were a widower. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, are you saying that's what brings you joy? You're like, no, no, I just feel like no, no, quid no, pro no. quo. <laughs> Welcome to Stand Up and Clown, the podcast. I'm your host, Chad Damiani. Thanks for listening, everyone. We've got a very special guest, someone I've been wanting to have on the pod, whom I also miss very much, who used to be an L.A. institution. So we're going to get to her in just a minute, but just a few reminders. If you're listening to this on the day of release, Monday, October 30th, the show that inspired this podcast, Stand Up and Clown, it's on at the Elysian, 9.30 p.m. There are still some tickets available. Please come out. It's our special Halloween show. We have Cameron Esposito, Moses Storm, Brandon Rogers, a.k.a. Brandon Board, who's a really great performer that I'm trying to get out to do more live events. Also, I have a new Substack. In case listening to Clown wasn't enough, you can read about it. You can find that link in the episode notes. Lastly, and this is more for the guest, because the guest is busy and I'm not sure they've listened to a bunch of these podcasts, but this is a podcast about clowning, not a clowning podcast. We have no obligation to be funny, do bits, try to bring up the entertainment factor. All we're doing is a deep dive into the work. And without further ado, let me introduce you to my friend, Scout Durwood. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited not to be funny. I think that's one of the secrets. You looked so relieved when I said that. I'm in a new town. I'm meeting strangers. And I met a stranger who was a civilian and we went out after the show kind of a kind of a date thing and she was so on and I was not and she was kind of visibly upset about it and I had to be like yeah I'm kind of small off stage she's like yeah I noticed oh it was also that thing like we're gonna play some pong here like I'm gonna be <laughs> on and then you're gonna come back at me and be more on oh boy and I didn't know how to be like also, you're not funny. Like, you're very controlling. Please don't do that. It's like they learn the patter of funny. Yeah. Like, they have the the rhythm and the tone, but they don't realize that there's actually content involved. Yeah. I would honestly say a nightmare for me would be if I got trapped in an episode <laughs> of Moonlighting for Eternity. <laughs> I've said, I've said, I think my no exit, my Jean-Paul Sartre would be like, She's not going to listen to it, so I'll say, my sister's not funny, but she tells jokes and requires you to respond. And, like, I don't have that anymore. I don't like, like, I, I do laugh. Like, that's a great joke. That's I do laugh. I belly laugh a lot. But my, like, my hell, my purgatory would be just people being like, right? And you going, ha, 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 ha. I can remember, and I think there's less of this, and I also think it's because we're older. There was always a friend in your group who would also either quote movies yeah. or replay certain scenes. Like, do you remember that scene, Billy Madison? That's my sister. She memorized all of Ace Ventura, Pet Detective for oh. extra credit. That's my sister. My heart just broke. When you said that, like, I literally felt my heart shrink. 
Now I feel like it's people who send me memes. You have to ignore 15 memes at least before or someone goes, she doesn't want this. Oh, yeah. Because at that at that moment, they might think, well, they're just quietly enjoying this contribution to their life. You have to really shut that down. There's so much to cover with you, Scout. And I was trying to figure out what the order should be. Let's just start where you are now, yeah. but then we're going to go backwards first. So right okay. now. I am in Ventnor City. No, I basically live in Atlantic City working on a Spiegel World show called The Hook at Caesars Casino. So I am the host, one of two hosts of a Cirque show. For those of you who don't know Atlantic City, this is a very big deal because there hasn't been yeah. kind of like a show like this, I think in Atlantic City for, I don't know how many decades. Like this, Atlantic is- City's gotten really boofed by industry. Like big casinos come and then they invest in like at- Actual Atlantic City does not have a grocery store. So it's like a very high petty crime. It's just, it's a very deeply underserved community. And then the rest of the island is just deeply racist and goes, I don't like that Atlantic City nonsense. So we are the first resident show, but it has all the infrastructure to be a really fun, itchy, fun town. So we are the first year-round residency show in like decades. So my parents live about 45 minutes to an hour from Atlantic City. My mom likes to play the slots. Okay. On occasion, one of her friends who's a bigger gambler will give her a... They're still, by the way, unlike Vegas, a mid-level, low-level gambler will still get comps for rooms and drinks. Uh Oh, totally. Very different than Vegas. So my parents go down. This friend goes, well, not only do we have this room for you, but we got tickets to the Patsy Cline show. This is a review. Like, this is an actress playing oh, yeah, Patsy Klein. I mean, long dead. Right. My parents do not know this. And, I, I, like, the <laughs> cognitive dissonance in this story is so funny to me. So they go, and they're sitting, and it's, like, fairly empty. And my parents are like, oh, my God, Patsy Klein is here? And then the actress playing Patsy Klein, who is entirely too young to be, even if Patsy Klein was alive. Right. They start marveling. They're like... I don't know who her surgeon is. Right. She looks amazing. So they're watching this whole show thinking it's Patsy Cline. And this is what makes me laugh twice as hard. Patsy Cline talking about all the details of her life. Because it's not just songs. It's the story of Patsy Cline. So they're just kind of looking at each other going, that's weird. Like, it's this weird biographical journey that Patsy Cline is leading us through. They get to the end of the show and there's essentially a line where Patsy Cline, the actress playing Patsy Cline, goes, Right. And that's when I died. <laughs> like, <laughs> and my parents are just sitting there going, What did she say? So, like, it wasn't until the last song of this entire review, Are they singing along? They're loving they... it. Yeah. They're loving it. They're singing. They're having a great time. They're like, Patsy Cline is doing amazing. And then they have this final song that is basically like the goodbye. And it's only in that moment that they realized clearly this is a review. Patsy Cline would be in her 90s. Yeah. And not looking like she was 35. And yeah. to their credit, they said through that song, they laughed so hard, they were disruptive. <laughs> and it was the sad ending song of like, goodbye, Patsy Cline. And they were like so embarrassed <laughs> that they just laughed uncontrollably. I just love that story. I just love this idea of my parents, who are the sweetest people on the planet, just like wide-eyed thinking they're watching this star from their youth. Yeah. And then hearing them, this person say in like a sixth sense kind of way, yeah. like, I'm dead. Uh, yeah. 
But I love, I do think the brain does that. Like I go, like when you were like Patsy Cline, I was like, oh great, yeah, that's, we get a lot of legacy acts. And then you go, obviously not Patsy Cline. And I went, oh yeah, yeah, brain math, obviously not Patsy Cline. I, I think you're, the brain goes along with whatever people say real far. And I think it's also true about Atlantic City, like you said. I mean, when I was living there 20 years ago, you could see a doo-wop band. And I'm not talking about someone doing a cover. I'm talking yeah. about the original doo-wop band from the 60s, all men in their 60s. With The temptations are coming at the end of the month. Then the real temptations. The real temptations. You sure about that? At the end of the show. Yeah. That I like, and then we tied. <laughs> no, I know the temptations are alive because a friend recorded their recent album. That's a fun brag. It's, it's a really weird freaking town. We went out. We share a lot of staff from Vegas. Spiegel World has their big shows in Vegas. We went out to like this club thing and I'm wearing like basically garbage clothes because right after the show and I never, you know, I bike to work. I don't. And um, I'm like, oh, God, I hope you like let me in. And then we get there and I forget there's no cool in Atlantic City. We were VIP. They We had a table, you know, they were like, hey, guys, oh, yeah, we love the show. My role in the show is I'm I'm the captain and like in the grocery store, people will be like, oh, my God, you're the captain. And you're like, it's it is the coolest, most fun, small town fame. We're like we went to Seafood Fest, which is what it sounds like. Got called out. Oh, have you seen the hook? The captain's here. It's pretty cool. That's all I want. I don't want fans. You know what I mean? But I, it's cool for people to like see and acknowledge that you do work. I had a stretch in my life where I was, I mean, a peripheral character. That's the best way I can say it in a pro wrestling show. You had to be the hardest core fan ever to know who I was. But because for this six years, I was traveling with wrestlers. We'd go from the airport to the hotel to the arena and then back to the airport that I thought I was famous. Yeah. <laughs> because everyone knew who I, like these people knew. And I'm like, I, yeah. I think I'm famous everywhere. Yeah. And the ultimate example of this was for a year they had opened in Vegas something called the Nitro Grill. That's named after our flagship show, WCW Nitro on Monday nights. Okay. And when I'd go to the Nitro Grill in Las Vegas, they would play the pay-per-views on loop. And in every pay-per-view for like a minute, I'm just on screen typing because I was the announcer for the website. So people yeah. there were like, that's yeah. the type of guy. And it, yeah. it felt, uh, honestly, it felt great. One of our swing acts requires a stage manager to leaf blow some stuff off stage at the end of it, right? So this act is not always in the show. It's only in the show when someone's out. And our stage manager has to do it. And with other cast members, she will get recognized ahead of us. Oh, my God, you're the leaf blower girl. That's great. Let's go back, though. Yeah. Scout, this is an exciting time in your life. Let's go back because I think you have such an interesting journey. Yeah. First and foremost, let me ask you. This is something I'm cutting. By the way, I'm going to leave it in so everyone can know. I have a tendency to say first and foremost, or I should mention conservatively 20 times a podcast. I say, does that make sense? Or you know what I mean? I don't know how to speak without those phrases. It gives us a second to think. That's what I'm realizing that I'm editing audio. It just gives us a second to kind of collect our thoughts. I want to ask you, how do you identify comedy? <laughs> oh, shit. We know uh, how you identify it. <laughs> actually, yeah. I don't know anymore. Taking this job, I mean, there was a strike maybe happening. Pilot season, like, doesn't exist. I feel like I am a multi-hyphenate, so maybe that's the answer, multi-hyphenate. But going into this job, I was like, I don't know anymore. 
And I kind of went, okay, I'm going to live in the transition for a while. I was nomadic for a while. I did van life. I lost my house. Not my house. I lived in a back house. A perfect little back house. And it got ripped out from underneath me by a cruel, also clown, who I don't like anymore. And I kind of went, okay, I don't know the answer. I When people go, what do you do? I don't know what to say. People go, where do you live? I don't know what to say. People say, where are you from? I'm like, LA, I guess, because I don't know what they're asking. So at first I was like, let me rebuild my life. And then I was like, I can't. I'm not going to go to New York on my days off. I'm tired. I sing in the show. My voice gets tired. So I do not know the answer to that. I know what I want to keep doing, Is it? but I don't know what I do right now. I don't know. <laughs> By the way, it should be said, th- these jobs are not easy. If you're in a Spiegel World show, you are performing five days a week. Yeah, 10 shows think, a week. We're down to eight because Atlantic City, we're in the off season. So we are down to eight and that was 10 shows a week. You didn't do any, you just, on Monday's our first day off and it was like kind of notoriously coma day. I'm not a like stay in bed all day gal. One Monday, I did not get out of bed until evening. The other thing that I think really sideswiped me here is the emotions of it. Not only are we a tight cast, we're on an island. There's like this ricochet of anything emotional that happens. I was having like big, weird emotions that I never have on set. Also, like I've been writing and directing more or like I've been hosting the shows as opposed to now where I'm just a cast member. So like I had to readjust my brain around what my status is in the show. I've never really worked with acrobats this closely. Boy, are they different than comedians. It's very different. Acrobats, oh contortionists. I sing one of the aerialists' acts. And like learning how it's not funny for me to deviate. Like she's doing choreography in her head. And it is my job on stage just to serve that act. Which for me is kind of fun and a relief. But like I live with the two other clowns. They definitely butt heads against stuff like... They're like, oh, well, I need this set up this way and they shouldn't da da da. And I'm like, I don't fucking care if the waitress drops checks during my act. That's my job. Like, I'm just here to take up space between the acts. And it's not true. Like, I have, you know, I love what I do in the show and I feel very valued in the show, but it's been a trip. So I guess the answer is like, I still want to do everything in comedy. I think coming here was a big like child's pose move for me. I did ketamine therapy. But it's been deeply emotional and weird. I don't know what job is. I don't know what industry is anymore. But also, none of us do. I don't want some of the things I thought I wanted. My One of my good friends directs SNL, right? And my movie won a little award at Outfest. And she was like, holy shit, Scout, congrats. And she meant it so deeply. And I was like, hey, and congrats on your Emmy nom, by the way, too. And it was like, For some weird world, that conversation was like, I was making this movie that I cared so deeply about and we've gotten a little accolade and she had this job that she really likes and she'd also gotten an accolade. And that feels more clear to me now than before. Just the fact that there's like a moment to breathe and say, my work was appreciated. Yeah. Like there's commercial success. There's artistic success. Like none of us know what we're doing. We're just tumbling. And some people are really achievement oriented within the industry. And great, good for them. And there's no right or wrong to that. I don't think you have to be wrong for for having fun this whole time and not focusing on. I really got mad at myself for a long time. I started in burlesque. I started in nightlife. Some days I feel so grateful that I had such a big part of my career where success wasn't part of the equation. Like it didn't matter. 
because that's been such a heavy part of my mental health is like, oh, I should be. But now I feel grateful for it. Some people have never had years where they got to do their art without people watching it or thinking they're the best or wanting them to be bigger or thinking they should be bigger. I got to perform in nightclubs for years. I'm actually, in a strange way, going through what you went through 20 years ago now. What do you mean? So when I was in my 20s, I got this job in pro wrestling. Right, right. I was on television immediately. Came out here after. I had a few years of struggle, so in my early 30s. Then I was working as a screenwriter, working, making six figures Yeah, you were, you, yep. Oh, that is true. We're flipping. And so now I'm at this point where I'm like, I just want to do what I love and I don't care. I mean, people are watching what I'm doing. We're getting good audiences here because clown is hot. I've been really thinking about power and authority a lot because I play an authority on stage, high status. And when I think about that stuff and I start to explain to the clowns that I'm teaching, oh, this is how it works and this is what authority is. It's also revealing, oh, the authority has no idea because now I'm playing the authority and the game is that I present myself as knowing everything. But in fact, the clowns know better than me. The clowns know how to make the audience happy, not me. It has changed how I see everything. Like I keep having these moments where I walk my dog and I'm thinking through all the meetings with creative executives or all the missives I was given about how to succeed and the right path. And I'm like, they never knew anything. How do you feel about that? Because I think one of the things that I don't know, I struggle with a lot is like this industry makes most people feel like they are garbage and a handful of people feel like they are almost enough and like, a couple people are Taylor Swift. Right. A couple A couple is kind. Am I propagating this like, if you're just thinner, faster, stronger, better, funnier, uglier, fatter, am I part of the bad guy? Like, I'm like going, just be you. But I want to be the one who says, just be you. Not these other people. You need to listen to me. Your version of just be you. Yeah, yeah. I need to inspire you. I'm the feminist in this room. I think the hardest part about where I'm at now is objectively, I create the work I'm most proudest of. I do the shows I most enjoy. I spend almost all my creative real estate and equity creating things I believe in. And because I spent 40 plus years believing that the system would serve me, there's still this Mm -hmm. voice in my head that's telling me I'm doing it all wrong. So I have that. Right. That makes me feel good that you said that, to be honest. I have to remind myself of that. I just had a big birthday and it was humbling. It was one of the first glimpses I had of like, I have a bunch of people in a dive bar, all really excited for me, buying me enough drinks that I had to be told it was time to go home. Great. Success. I actually look up to you because I feel like you have always pivoted and been brave enough to try new things if things weren't working. Hmm. You had those years and I'd love to talk about that in a second. Where, yeah, you were having fun doing burlesque, maybe drinking too much, maybe drinking. Oh, I still, I'm just coming to terms with maybe drinking a little too much. (laughs) I've narrowly avoided having to give up alcohol completely many a time. I like how you've narrowly avoided it. Like it's like, oh, I have a joke that the reason I'm not an alcoholic is I love alcohol too much. And it's not far from the truth. When I see it, I say if it touches parts of my life, I didn't give it permission to touch. Then I have to rein it back in. Yeah. But when you even mentioned the van stuff earlier, Mm -hmm. I feel like you went out 
And I should say, I consider you one of my most talented friends Aww. in general. I think you have just natural charisma and you actually have some skills to back up the charisma. I have a lot of charismatic clown friends <laughs> who are like, this is, I have enough. And I feel you are one of the few comedians I feel really safe around. Like, I would let you steer any shit. And I think it's because you have a relationship with authority and with ego that does serve people around you. I think when you play high status, there are certain comedians who are high status, play high status. And it's scary for me. Like, it's a little bit like, I don't want to be in your kingdom. Whereas with you, I feel like the gift you give everybody is being the idiot king. But you are unquestionably the king. And it feels very safe in that world. Oh, thank you. I was talking about status the other day. What I notice is a lot of people think that the status is the protection. But if you really embrace high status, what you're embracing is vulnerability. Oh, hugely. One of the things that was really hard for me, and you've kind of taught it to me, is like the only reason you have status is for people to root kind of against you. Yeah. So I live with the, my co-host and the clown in the show, right? And the clown in the show is deeply low status. Like he is a always. And one of the things that we've I've like figured out is that being high status is kind of often being the straight man is setting him up. Like when we do bits around the house, most of what I do is set him up for the big laugh. Like I'm an avatar for the audience. I'm. I, it's been so cool to figure out what status is and that like, how in this show I play really high status so I have kind of minions and we built them in I don't just walk on stage someone announces me on stage it's just a way of like lending me status one of the most valuable experiences for me was that I got to be in pro wrestling because what I learned in pro wrestling is you had the heels who were usually yes. powerful they were like either physically strong or in the show it was created that they had power and stature like they ran yes. the show yes and if they were good at their job their sole purpose was when the good guy the underdog came in the ring to be so generous uh -huh. and make this person look like they were kicking their ass yes win for one second at the end just because the story has to keep going but in general the audience is absolutely fully focused on the good guy and you have to learn and it's what you're dealing with now that this is a beautiful position as a performer to be in because those laughs are your laughs too. The yes. audience might not realize it, but you do. You realize that you, and they will fall in love with you because they won't realize that you're what's keeping it all together. Mm -hmm. But deep down, they know when you're gone, they're not as happy. And when you do it with charm, I feel like, I, so I started in Queer Nightlife, but then I was like, I did a lot of burlesque emceeing or like, and now, now I'm like more careful with what I call circus, but like sideshow circus, you know what I mean? Like variety type shows. And you would get really sexual acts. You'd get really not great acts or acts like failed. And it was like my job to be the audience, even though sometimes the audience was these like screaming drunk bachelorettes or even worse, bachelors. And like you just kind of learn if I smother them with love, they're going to like absorb into my world. And that's the gift I give for my performers. But yeah, any status you have is just so you can lose it. I think it's why I still struggle with clown because my brain, you've done it to me. Here's an impossible test. Still, to this day, it haunts me. You go, go on stage, do something that in 20 years, people are still going to be talking about it. And like that prompt for me still makes my brain explode because in my brain, I'm like, I can actually pull that off. I could I could do something on stage that in 10 years people are going to be talking about. 
And then I go, okay, no, that's just achievement and we don't. So it's like, I don't know how to fail big. I just know how to give that prompt to people and hold that space for people. I still can't complete the task, but I can give it. You accomplished this because I still remember. I've seen, at this point, conservatively a thousand people do this exercise. And I remember your turn, not for what you did, but for this moment right before you went out, you walked to the back and then you (laughs) walked back out immediately and you had this like really pensive look (laughs) on your face. And I was like, what's going on, Scout? And you're like, I was going to flash my tits, but that's easy for me. And it was like so conversational. You're (laughs) almost like, I'm going to repark the car so that we can get out of the room. And you're like, I was going to flash my tits. And I was like, well, I think you have your answer. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I think I do. And you just just as thoughtfully walked back. And I'm like, there it is. That's the moment I wanted. I totally remember. Because like I said, when you walked out, I was worried because you were really in this deep thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. As a student, I was really surprised you even took the class because you're a very polished performer. But also I was inspired by that. I'm like, oh, right. Like we're always learning something new. You created, I remember, I think Jamie Parkinen was one of the other people, but you created a game that is still one of my favorite games ever played in class. There was this thing I was doing back then called create a game and you had three players and you had to create a game that the audience understood. Yeah. And it it was like a game where you had to yell out a word really fast and then someone would be kicked out of the game. But then even the kicked out person, if they yelled faster than the other person, they would get back in. So it was such a broken game because no one was ever out, but everyone was acting like they were out. I do remember, I let you guys go on for like 10 years. You three never surrendered the energy of like, we're playing to win, even though winning was impossible. (laughs) I've always struggled with, I think being high status is hard because- you still want to learn like so much of my like not even journaling, but like dog walking thoughts are like, oh, my gosh, I just want someone to tell me how to do it. Like I get so jealous of people who are like, oh, so and such molded me. And I think when you play high status, you have to cobble it together a little bit. But I remember taking that class and thinking like, Ugh, I don't know. But I was like, I need to learn. I don't know what I'm doing. And so it's a really hard thing to click your brain in and out of being the all knowing director And from that class, I put that class was the last thing I did before COVID. I remember you being like, oh, I'm not going to teach this class in a while. And I was like, why? What's going on? And you were like, COVID, this flu is kind of serious. When you say, by the way, you're talking, this class took place a week before. (laughs) I think it's the last. Yeah, Yeah. I think I did. I went roller skating and I went to a bar. And those are the only two outside things I did outside. You didn't have a go-go show right before? Oh, no, we did on that Tuesday and we had human fountain on. That's my remember. Tell the story because I remember you telling me about this and I cringed. Oh, anyway, I put a decal on my wall of something you said to me. You were like, and because you were giving us feedback and you go, Scout, you got it. Just don't bail on the bit. And meanwhile, I had been like, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I want to go home doing you had to repeat something forever. And you were like, so dismissive, like, don't bail on the bit or don't give up. And I remember being like, don't give up. Wait, (laughs) don't give up. And I ended up putting a decal on my wall over COVID in my little writing room. So don't give up. Okay. So the Tuesday before COVID, we had an Everybody Could Go show and we had Human Fountain, who's an act who they are a human fountain. They drink water. They spit water into each other's mouths. They make these fountain that's really great. And there's one bit where they go up and down a chain. So it starts with an audience member 
who spits water into the mouth of the fountain. The fountain goes all the way up and all the way down. And then the audience member kind of gets to decide if, in this case, it was a she, she gets the water spit back into her mouth. And she's, she let it happen. And my co-host Peaches and I are watching this going, we're not going to get to do this for a minute. <laughs> we're talking days before just the American lockdown, but other countries were already being yeah. ravaged yeah. and yeah. in full lockdown. So we were in this very silly space where we're like, well, we don't get, get locked down for four more days. It's like, no, we're like licking each other's mouths. Oh, I mean, crazy. I think. And yeah, and you were like, the audience was exhilarated, but you said that you also felt like this palpable, like, can we do this? Yes. It it really now feels like time, that moment feels like time travel because we didn't even, we hadn't even totally experienced the cringe of like, now I think there are experiences that make us all cringe. Like the first time I went to a movie theater not wearing a mask, I was like, well, this is insane. How have we ever done this? So all these people breathing, one room, no. And that that room was like the first cringe we had of like, this isn't right anymore. God, what a dark freaking time. I think we've had the reverse experience where as we've come out of the COVID that killed all our grandpas, there's these moments that we had in LA, especially in the clown zoo shows, the very early clown zoo shows at the Elysian, where there's a picture, you can find it online. It's of me being literally spat upon by the nine other members of like, I'm being dressed down as the authority father bone and they've stripped me down to my underwear and they're all leaning on top of me and just streams of saliva. (laughs) When is that? This was the first show we did Uh in the Elysian at a time where people were still like, I don't know if we can hug audience. I don't know if we can shake hands. We still go through that. This show, I had a bit where I wanted to spit an olive into my subordinate's mouth which I spit in my co-host's mouth all the time. It's kind of one of our bits. Like she she brings me a drink and she can't get it right. And then finally I let her try the drink and I spit it in her mouth. And he was like, he wouldn't do it. And I was like, what? It's an olive. I can't spit an olive in your mouth? Square. And then even I now I spit in the audience, but I spit it into an aisle. We had these huge conversations about like, I drank an audience member's drink one time. She gave it to me and I got lectured about it. I worked with Spiegel World all through the pandemic, helping them with this video series. I hate to brag, but this was the first time someone had been able to convince Ross Mollison that the people (laughs) in the shows didn't have to always be the characters. Oh, I can't believe you got that. It's a big deal. I had to ask permission to say that I'm the captain. I convinced him to, because the shows could not exist, to allow us to just interview the performers and their real life experiences. These videos were super great. But as I was doing these videos, they were figuring out how to do the shows again. And you want to talk about some of the most complicated protocols. They put protocols in place. They were spending tens of thousands of dollars on daily expensive COVID tests. And Uh. I'm not surprised, I guess, with Hook, that remnants of that. Yeah sort of bureaucracy still exists because it was their entire world. They spent months and months figuring it out. I do think it's like we're back, but it is a little bit. It's like some people just hate it now. And always when you do bits in the audience, there is like a game of reading the performers. We have an acrobat who does picks an audience person for something and she is not as good at it as the clowns. Right. There's like you do have to read people. But now if you read wrong, you could read really wrong. There are some people who do not want to touch you. Our front row 
is often not full, but our whole theater will be. And then people just don't want to be messed with because there's like a fear. When I do those crossover shows, I have to remind myself that yeah. at the clown shows, people show up almost like Fight Club. They're like punching yes. in the face. Huge. Like, I yes. feel like. But if I'm in a stand-up show, I did no. one. I told the story a few podcasts ago. I have this rig called Dick in a Bear Trap where I had it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's- I had done the I had done the bomber bit there. Your dick is so real. Yeah, and so fake. I'm like, <laughs> this would be a nightmare. I thought I was joking with the fabricator, who's a great burlesque performer in their own right, that I would be like, oh my God, if this was real, how great. But then one day I just had it on and I'm like, could you just imagine <laughs> having this Pringles can stuck in your jeans every day? Oh, oh, with how big it is. Oh, I was like, I'm sure there's a moment in your day that's great. <laughs> like, but. But in general, like just sitting on a plane and you're like, oh, no. I, I can't, you know, it's turbulence and I'm sitting on it. I'm literally, it's under my leg on a night. It goes under your leg? I'm saying if it was that big. If it was that big. Well, anyway, I walk out. I had done the bomber there, but the bomber has distance. The bomber is still somebody who is, it's a far away threat. But when I came out covered in blood with Dick in a Bear Trap, I, I'm walking out as I always do backwards. So my butt's exposed. Yeah, yeah. When I turn back around, literally not one person in the audience will look at me. They won't look at me. I'm too close. Even though the blood is fake, I'm too naked. Right. And it was a grueling 12 minutes of them just wishing I was gone. And what can you do? I can't just break. Maybe I could. Would you have broken character? I don't know. Regular stand up. I actually have this conversation with my housemate because he's a clown. His set is very confrontational. It's meant to be a little bit uncomfortable, right? And we were talking about it and I kept using the word consent. And he was like, he finally was like, stop. It's not, that's too charged of a word for me. Like I can't process what I do. I don't know. And I was like, for me, it's different. I don't do that kind of comedy. Like it's too scary for me. The thought of doing something the audience doesn't like and not being able to pivot is really scary for me. You're a pleaser on stage for sure. Oh, yeah. And it's like a mission for me to make everyone feel uniquely special. Like on this show, if anybody pulls out a camera, we'll stop and wave or like wave during the song. I try to create as many intimate moments. Yes, it's so calculated. But for me, it's it, it's from a show I saw in Edinburgh, Meow Meow Show. And I was like, oh, you can create these super intimate moments that people carry with them forever. And I think that's so beautiful, like that form of connection. And even with like the new, I hate to say one woman show, but the new Just Me on Stage show I'm doing that we like premiered and then I did this contract. So it's kind of been on the back burner. But that's kind of the point of it is like, I'm trying to say this is special. You get to take this with you in your brain. Not, no one else gets to be in this room, but the people who are in that room, this room and it's special. Yeah, it's kind of one of my MOs. And I think it comes from being super femme when I came out as gay. And so I had this like Pied Piper thing where I was like, come on, guys, being gay is the best. It's a parade and it's fun and it's loving. And so many people would later be like, that meant so much to me. And so I still feel like even now, right, my body's changed. I used to have a very conventionally correct body. Now I have like curves. And when I had that body, it was great to be like, See, guys, we can all be naked. And now I look in the mirror and I'm like, whoa, boy, do I have notes. But on stage, I'll never admit that. On stage, I'm like, you're welcome. Jiggly, the better. Everything's great. 
And it's because of that. It's because like I want what I'm doing on stage to be better than life, more intimate than life. Yeah, it's like my ML. I'm dealing with a similar thing where during the pandemic, I was living prison style. I was eating a bunch of protein and I was working uh-huh. out twice a day. I had an eight pack. I have pictures. I took a lot, a lot of pictures. <laughs> and now that the world is a little more normal, I'm just living a more normal life. Yeah. It was fun when the pandemic had just ended and all of a sudden my shirt would be ripped off. And I also had a conscious part of me that was like, you look great. You look great. You're being embarrassed. But in fact, you are a 50-year-old man who has this body. And now I'm still in good shape, but I'm just, I have a normal, I have a normal body of a 50-year-old who works out. Every time I see footage, I'm like, they love me more. So I'm in a show with my co-host tonight. The clown is not just 100 pounds. He was 100 pounds. He's a very, that's part of why he's low status. He has a very clown body. The co-host and I were trying to like lose a little weight. Like we're both comics, you know, or whatever. Comedians. And at one point I go, Phil, no matter, and we're like going, maybe we should drink a little less, lose a little weight. And the people in our show are literal Olympians. Like yeah, they're not possible standard. No matter what we do, we're going to be the two fattest people in the show. And he's like, no, we, yeah. And I was like, so let's just be the fattest people in the show. And I've had maybe like, maybe like half a dozen people stop me on the street or come up to me after the show and go, you have the best body in that show. And I'm like, I have a big naked moment in the show. I have the most naked moment in the show eh, because I'm I'm equally naked to my co-host. But I think female nudity is like a little more. It's a different thing. And that's part of why I fought for it. I wasn't supposed to have it. And he comes out in this really revealing comic bathing suit. And I was like, put me in the same thing. I control pasties. And the reaction people have to fluffy body in that is so cool. And like, I don't always look in the mirror before I go on stage because like, Boy, is the lighting in that green room a little harsh. <laughs> no one no one sets their head green rooms to f- flatter. Like no one's like, what's the light design in the in, in the dressing room? No one ever does that. I'm like, hey, this is where we need it. Yeah. I love having a body that I can like slap and that wiggles and like it's a different thing. But then like when my mom came to the show, I was like, My mom's not gonna care that I'm naked, but it is gonna bum her out that I'm fluffy now. Because she grew up in the 70s with a dad who was like, thin as in. Like she was functionally anorexic for a huge chunk of her life, just thinking like, that's how you fit in your pants. And I talked to her about it and I was like, I'm, I am nervous. You are going to feel like I've let you down or like I failed because I'm not working hard enough to have this body that is attainable to me. I just don't care. And she was like, Scouter, you are so proud of your body and it's honestly inspiring. And I like hung up the phone and was like, Am I healing generational trauma? Bring on the Doritos. <laughs> Do you know Dennis from OPM? I don't. I don't know any of those guys. I I want to go out there. You should. And like I said, it's such an interesting spot because Hook is a premium show in a lot of ways. They spent more money on oh, yeah. than the shows in Vegas. They rebuilt an entire theater. Yes. But there is a sense just like you're in the, the uh, satellite campus. Uh-huh. It's not in Vegas. This was a real eye-opening thing for me. When I started working with Spiegel World and coming in and I was helping rewrite the show a little bit, I was doing some coverage of a captain role that they had in OPM at the time yeah. that no longer exists. <laughs> I meet this guy, Dennis, and he's in a full suit. He looks great, handsome guy. 
he goes out and does the bubble act. And the bubble act is uh-huh. just him speaking eloquently and he makes these gorgeous bubbles. Probably the most popular act at that time in the show outside of Christian and his chihuahua, which always crushed every night. Which you can't, I mean, that's, I've seen that act. You beat that's that. That's the best act. I watch the act. I go back just to meet everyone because I'm helping rewrite just the clown bits yeah. of the show. He's changing. Scout, I didn't notice. He was part of this, like the dootly, it was called like the handsome acrobats or something. This person who has full coverage on his body, this full suit, <laughs> a boxy cut, 6% body fat. Yeah. Built like a Marvel superhero in a way that honestly I had never seen in real life. Oh, I'd really? Movies. Like just the vascularness, the perfection of his body. And he's purposely like, I got to cover this up for this act. When you realize that, you're like, I cannot worry about how I look. I'll never be this. I'll never ever have a moment. Even in my 20s, I couldn't have been. And no. he's in his late 40s. And what? I'll tell you, one of the best bodies I've ever seen. And he doesn't even show it off. I love bodies. I love, like, the weirdness of bodies. And nudity has always been a big part of, like, what I do. Or, like, it's always, I've always worked in, like, a set. And now it's interesting to negotiate it. And I do cover, like, when I do stand-up, now I wear, I finally gave in. And now I wear baggy garbage clothes. Not that I do stand-up that much anymore. We have one guy, we have an Adonis in our show as well, and he's so open about his body dysmorphia comes from intense trauma, like perfectionism. And he's like, you don't understand. I think I'm fat and too skinny at the same time. He's a gay man, and I feel like gay men are just really, really taken over with eating disorders right now. I mean, they are killing it with intense body dysmorphia. They've caught up. They've caught up. They've caught up. I mean, hashtag throw like a boy. No, I don't know, but... Yeah, it's interesting to talk to him about it, too. Bodies are great. I'm super fascinated, and I was never... I was someone who had a lot of shame, even working out, I would say, through my 20s, through my 30s. I also had bouts where I was as much as 270 pounds, where I couldn't seem to decide if I wanted to be dieting all the time and exercising or just not, like, eat hot dogs for breakfast. Like, it was, like, every other day... And I actually had an incident recently where Natalie Palomides and I did this bit, which crushed called. You guys both work out so much. You are so fit. Well, this is more about like male genitalia stuff. Okay. All right. Go ahead. So, but thank you, by the way. Hmm. We did this bit. It's called Amsterdam Sex Show. And we we pretended we had these. Sun- I have an act where I have a sunburn and I use all this red makeup. Yeah. yeah, yeah she yeah. loves this act. And I'm like, let's both have sunburns, but we've come to do a sex show. So we have these terrible sunburns. We were out there for like 20 minutes and I was like, you know what? Natalie was going to get completely naked. I'm like, I'm going to do it. It's been a while, but I'm going to do it. But I was also like, my male genitalia is such a mixed bag on it's hard. certain shows. <laughs> so I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I had some of this charcoal just in my thing. I was like, I'm just going to charcoal. I basically <laughs> faced my genitals. I'm not proud of this. <laughs> but what happened was I had this almost allergic reaction. <laughs> And my genitals shrunk to a third of their size, shaft and balls. Just like, I was like, what's, and then I'm like, I have to go out. I can't walk. There's no shower. And I'm like, I'm tr- out here to be funny. Yeah. I'm out here to have fun. But there was a moment of like, oh my God, people are. I will say male genitalia is so, it's like all of the female body is scrutinized. 
so much of male body image is just your penis. That is, I cannot imagine like living with this secret, you know, no one knows how big anybody's genitals are. And I I think it is such a weird thing. It's so weird. And also like if you're on a pornographic website, like if you're like if you're a man, every ad is not only about making your penis bigger, but these pictures are so grotesque. Yeah. Like it's not just like, would you like a healthy penis yeah. that hangs a little bit? It's always like would you like a penis like a Guinness stout can <laughs> where the head looks like it, it has a mouth? I'll say <laughs> no, they don't. No, you're not exactly an expert. Not at all. I mean, I go to the gynecologist <laughs> and I'm like, please tread lightly. <laughs> I wanted to do another flashbacks. These are selfish episodes for me because yeah. I get to talk to my friends. Can I tell you the first time I saw you as a performer, not realizing all of this work you've done in burlesque and nightclubs was you were a member of an improv team. Oh, was it flashing? Oh, we were bad. We were so bad. Blissfully bad. I loved it. By the way, I loved it. I booked you guys a bunch because oh, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, they're yeah. having that, the time of their lives. Yeah. I loved you guys. You would go up there and you had such swagger and then the <laughs> show would start and it was like so disjoint. By the way, you had more eclectic personalities. Yeah. And it was all like people we loved, but as a group, like, yeah, I don't think you ever found like one cohesion. No, we never had a. Well, we would try, and there was, it was like, we all loved each other so much. I mean, we spent all day, every day together. The Yippie Up sisters spun out of that. And there was one member of our team who was just this agent of chaos. Like, we could get it going. We could, like, maybe have, like, establish a game, find a game. And then all of a sudden, Kate would crawl down the aisle. Kate Lane, I was going to say, it's it's Kate Lane. I was like, so by the way, (laughs) very proud of chaos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Kate. Kate's amazing. Oh, my God. But it would just, we would just, we couldn't do it. And then Kate would meow or something and we'd be like, well. And Kate was so young, too, right at that point. Wasn't Kate in her early 20s? Like, she's younger. I don't remember. I, I get a hard, I have a hard time remembering. I know Amy and I, I'm like barely older than her. Sarah's, I don't know. I know in, I know our order. I don't know our age. Says. I do remember age. exactly what you're talking about. You let me play with you once, which was so fun. I don't know if you were at that show, but I might have been subbing for you. It was fun to be in that cast because watching it's fun, but being on stage, like you're laughing the whole time, but you're like, oh, there's no wrangling these cats. Like, no, you just have to enjoy this because <laughs> there's no cohesion. <laughs> you did this one thing that I'll never forget where in a set, you just decided to hula hoop. I don't know if this was something <laughs> regularly, but this was when I got my first glimpse of who Scout Durwood really was because you grabbed this hula hoop and you're like, I'm going to do this for the whole set. And you went to the side and you started hula hooping and you kept hula hooping. And then you started drawing all the focus because you were getting tired, but <laughs> your will to not quit, like you were like, <gasps> and like, like you said, you're also like a young, beautiful woman and you're just like, and they're like trying to do scenes like at an Applebee's and stuff. And everyone's like, we're going to watch this person who's clearly exhausted try to hula hoop for 15 minutes. And I was just like, who is that? I need to know this person. Oh, that's nice. It's moments like that are so, I think that it's so easy to forget them. And now I'm trying to like journal more because I was backstage at the pack at Speed Face, which was just chaos. And Jeff Sloniker wasted, probably, 
at least drinking a beer, came up to me and was like, and I was in my head. I mean, this is when I, you know, was probably doing the TV show, all that stuff. And I really wanted to like be successful. And why don't I have these specials and blah, blah. And Jeff Slonecker comes up to me and goes, doesn't get any better than this. Just doing jokes with your friends, making each other laugh. And I was kind of like, oh, he's right. Yeah. I think about like people go, oh, I can't sing. I can't sing. And I'm like, who cares? When I go to karaoke, I don't sing at karaoke. I don't need to sing at karaoke. I get to sing on a stage. Everybody should sing. Like that's what singing is. It's just screaming words, music that make the thought sound more feelingsy. Like that's it. So like, who cares if you can do the these runs and who your mixed voice and stuff? Who cares? Belt, dude, belt. And the audience, by the way, seeing you try something you're not good at, that's clown. I like finding things that I'm kind of good at, but not like the hula hooping is a great example of it. I totally know what you're talking about because I went through a phase where I was like, I can medium hula hoop. In shows, I try to come up with games, especially this show because it's like, do it so much. I come up with games all the time to play in my head so that I'm thinking about something that's actually a little bit hard for me. So I actually have a challenge on stage. Like, on the TV show, I used to try to like hit my mark perfectly without looking. It became a thing for me to think about in the scene because you can't you can't have the feeling behind those lines that many times. I mean, you can kind of, but like eventually you're just saying it, especially if it's not your coverage. So I'd be like, I, I love it. Doing, doing things that are actually a little bit hard for you, but not unsafe for the audience all day, all day. And crucial, like you said, right now, eight shows a week, normally 10 shows a week. Yeah. You create games with the audience, with the performance that you do, like in the actual writing. Yep. And then you have to create games for yourself. Yes. I find it happening a lot with some of the bits that I've done 50 or 100 times, like the uh -huh. bomber or Marco. There has to be some little thing that I'm chasing. Like maybe I just want one audience member to really sympathize with me. Like I'll just add right. that game. I'll be like, I'm going to find someone in this audience, even though I'm a villain. Yeah. I'm going to keep looking at it and be like, you get that I'm a good person. Last night during a song, a guy was wearing a shirt with a football or a sports. I knew it was a football team mascot. And it was one that I knew I confused between the two. I didn't know if it was an eagle or a Seahawk. So we're singing Love Boat. And the whole song, whenever I can like take a breath, I keep looking over and being like, Seahawks, right? La, la, is it an eagle? And for me, it was like, it was so fun to try to guess it. And like, I have a bit where I talk to a person off stage. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing a bit where I'm like, I said to him, and one of the ushers started acting back at me as the guy that I was talking to. And now every night I get to pick an usher and they will perform the entire, like they'll mime the entire, his side of the conversation. And it's like so fun and joyful. That's so great too to give them. Maybe that one person catches yeah. it a night. Maybe one yeah. person. But, but for you, when they see it. They're like, "What is that?" It's great. I love it. I think it's so important. One of the things I learned from creation of the show is how much that like high status, like Lady Scoutington version of me, how much the heels influence it. One, because I'm a giant, and people think I'm six two, and that's important to me for status. And two, because it changes what I can do with my body. I can't jump down a flight of stairs at all. I have to think. I'm wearing five-inch heels in this show. I've, and five I inch picked, heels? Yeah, and I picked them. Yep. And it hurts and it's challenging. And like, I could not imagine doing it without it. I did. I broke my toe. I broke my toe because I'm an idiot. And I had to wear flatter shoes. 
for a while it was fun, but people were like, where are the sparkle shoes? And I was like, you're right. Captain needs her sparkle shoes. It's ridiculous. Why am I wearing disco shoes with a captain's uniform? Something about it makes sense. And it makes me walk like choreography. We do a show called Joe Dome once a month. I don't think you've been to it. No, I haven't. It is a disaster. Five minute or die format. A lot of times it's the first place a clown in the community will put up a bit. Oh boy, clowns. And oh boy, clowns, you couldn't have said it better because <laughs> they're so lovable, but they're also so confused. And oh, they've seen so, like they'll see work you do or that I do or that Natalie or Courtney or Bill does. And they're like, I know what this is. They do not. Yeah. So last night was an absolute batshit night of the stage getting messed up. But my favorite bit was recently to clown. I won't, I'll name, I'll call, I'll say Kim, but I won't say the last name. This is a person who has won MTV video awards for their directing. This is a very accomplished oh, okay. person. Got you it. know this Kim? Absolutely. Kim took her first, she's been producing stuff for us. She took her first clown class with me, crushed. She did? Fear, fearless. Yeah. Such an absence of fear, it's almost daunting as yeah. a teacher. Yeah, I can see that. And also smart. Huge career. Capable, huge career, like a real career. And is having so much fun doing clown. So I live directed Kim. They did great. Absolutely. They were partnered. And the person they were partnered with, who's usually kind of an alpha, was almost immediately like, oh, I'm following I'm yeah. right. I'm following. Yeah. I was like, Kim, you got to put your first bit up. You have to put a bit up. I can't stress enough. This is a person who has produced so many shows I've been in, has seen endless amounts of clown. What's worked, what hasn't. Kim opens Joe Dome. And I already see she's outside the theater at the clubhouse and there's too many props. I'm like, there's too many props. Yeah. There's a pregnancy belly. There's a rig. I don't know what the rig is for, but it's being set up. I'm like, oh, for your first bit to have all this machinery. So I'm yeah, like, this is great. Yeah, feels right. Feels right. Kim comes in and immediately like just points at someone, doesn't like read the audience, just points at someone, come up here. They come up. She starts, a, immediately starts a scene, like they're in a scene together uh -huh. and she's furious at them, like every mistake you can make. <laughs> and I'm laughing already. So then the water breaks. That's the first yeah, part of the rig. That's the rig. Kim lays down this person whom she does not know. If it's a clown named Sarah Stern, she won't mind me mentioning her. Sarah was good enough to come up. Sarah goes to deliver this baby. They have not spoken. This is not pre-planned. And Kim hits the second part of the rig, which is just goo shooting all on Sarah's clothes and Sarah's face. No, 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 no. I was destroyed. Laughing. You couldn't do that at the improv. Let me tell oh you that my, right now. You couldn't do it anything. Like, it just happened to be the right show and Sarah was the right clown. But it wasn't yeah. It wasn't because she surveyed, like, who is this? And- I looked at my my one of my mentees, Luke, and I'm like, this is pre-planned? And Luke's like, it is not. And I was like, <laughs> and Sarah being a good sport, Sarah was in her regular clothes because she was in a bit earlier in the night. More goo, just getting slathered, all her real clothes and face, getting, and, and stayed in it and did the bit. To your point, I'm like, if this is ever gone for me, I will miss it till the day I die. Audience liked it or audience cringed? They were like exhilarated, but almost like a riot was about to break out. Right, like, right, right. She did not have control in any sense of the audience. Having control, we just got a bit, a clown bit tempered, almost got cut because of an audience took control from the performer. And it was like, hey, if you can't wrangle the audience at all times, because this is, I mean, 
the audience guy almost fell off the stage. And so I was like, great, you can't do this bit anymore. And did you figure out a math that sort of protected the audience member from themselves? It wasn't my bit. And the mm. person who got it cut was really mad about it. We see it all the time here because we bring people into our bits, but you know this because you do a lot of audience interaction. It's so structured and confined. Yes. Even though the audience member thinks they're free. Yes. It's sort no, of like no, no, the no. game with Michael Douglas. It's like Michael Douglas thinks he's solving the <laughs> riddle, but in fact, they're controlling everything. They're the cops. They're the doctors. <laughs> and I'll see people bring an audience member up and they'll just be like, how was your day? And I'm like, what? You just- No. You just can't, don't hand it over. Like, no, 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 no. Tell them what to do. Tell them how to do it. If I'm being honest, last night I tried a new bit where I realized while I had control, I didn't have enough control. I was doing my security guard and oh. I was searching through someone's fake bag that I planted and there was like a gun oh, in good. it. But oh. I, I brought them on stage and I didn't instruct them at all. And now I'm like, you know what? I think what needs to happen is they just stay in their fucking seat. Yeah. And I bring the bag up and then I just show them everything. So they're just the same as the audience. And it's about yeah. me. It's sort of a form of dominatrix saying. It's like this weird, like, I'm in service of you, but I'm completely in control. Like, there is this agreement that you will either do what I say or the game get is over immediately. And so when audiences start to do what they want to do and the game's not over immediately, that's dangerous. Wait, I wanted to ask, is has there ever been a bit where you as ringleader, as facilitator, as straight man to the clown world, stopped it? You mean like I'm the director or whatever, the provoker, yeah. and I literally go, no more of this. Yes. Uh, many. Have you ever, a, a pre-planned bit, like what Kim did, which by the way, good for her. I was so proud of her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she, because this capable woman did everything wrong and owned it. Yeah. Like it she yeah. didn't have to be great. She made yeah. every mistake. You mean like a pre-planned bit? Not or... like an, obviously an audience member, you'll, for, you'll say, okay, blackout, that's enough or whatever. Right. Oh, also just total tangent. Your ragging on the improv community brings me joy on a level that I have to like temper how many of your posts I'll like because it is like the one of the polar bear coming out. I mean, obviously that strikes a personal chord for me. I was like, oh, we dated. But <laughs> just ragging on how important people take the make ups in that community. Intense joy. And I have the nichest audience so for if you're listening on my Instagram, yeah, at yeah, Chad yeah. Damiani. Follow it. I've just been making memes that make fun <laughs> of the self-seriousness of comedy and especially improv from but both of us. so niche and it's so, so and it's like all at once very pointed and very general. Like you'll make these like very insightful digs and then some of them will just be like improvers old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are old. Stop <laughs> performing. Too old for as someone who is old, I'm like that's <laughs> doubly funny for me. I had a a bit that I didn't stop, and this is an example of that moment. As because you know, I'm the impresario of Catsby, the show I did that you've yep. done. There was a group that has been experimenting with a Jerry Springer format, and okay. so they're trying to be polarizing. They've done everything right in the pre-construction. It is a widely inclusive group. So it's not just like a bunch of white dudes being like, let's sure. be dangerous. But they did a bit where like, it was like, oh, I, you broke up with me because your family's racist. I don't ask to precede things. I'm like, go up yeah. there. It's a sketch or it's an improv scene. It's a sketch, yeah. but a very loose sketch with lots of yeah. impro improv. There's a moment where it's like, your dad is here. And I'm like, oh, where's this going? And I knew 
this white guy was in the sketch, but cast, he wasn't part of the creative process. He walks out from behind the flats of the clubhouse, fully dressed as a Klansman. This crowd turned in a way that I've never seen. No, like, like yeah. not like this is fun. He takes off the uh, the hood and he's just standing there. And clearly he had been- Broke character. He'd been convinced previously that he would get a big laugh because that's the face. Do you know that face I'm talking about where someone's on stage and they're like, this is literally the opposite of what I was told yeah. or what I expected. Oh, yes. And he almost started crying. Yeah. Because it was getting so much hate, like genuine hatred. And you know what? I'm like, they've got two minutes left. Let's see what they do. Let's see what they do. They made a mess. Yeah, what do they do? They stick to the script? They uh, they definitely tried to sort of like, the, no, he's changed. He's not that guy. I mean, he's dressed in a clown's outfit. Uh, but it completely imploded. Like the last two yeah. minutes weren't good. But you gotta let you gotta leave clowns up there to die. They have to die so they can be reborn. Like I there was can't a big protect them. It is such a weird thing. And like there was a big debate that in the burlesque world where a high powered MC said the N word on stage. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now the context of it was he had called something, he'd used the R word. Oh, he's hitting all the beats. He's hitting them all. So he goes, yeah, he's a, he goes, so and such is running late. No, the French, oh, the, the the French for that. No. And he said that in the audience, went, ooh, or whatever. And he goes, relax. It's not like I said. And then said a very deeply racist word. One of the only words that I, I used to be against the N word, the R word. But now I'm like, a friend of mine who is a woman of color a long time ago was like, no, don't. That's not, you're not taking the power away from words. And I was like, got it. Heard and great. And I'm sorry I made that mistake. Everybody makes those mistakes. I did a bit when I was at, 19 where to yeah this was not meant to be funny and it is not to counting crows colorblind a black man and i painted each other skin the opposite color and then in all the cast photos that night i am beaming in partial blackface oh yeah but so this guy said the n-word on stage and it was like it polarized the world some people were like we this is a place where actor or comedians or performer whatever get to make mistakes and it was at slipper room so it is this very progressive sex forward like intentionally line crossing space and then other people were like no he's a white man he knows better he's a middle-aged white man or at least like an above 30 white man he knows better i mean my take on that is who is crossing the line if you're in a space and you are the injured party and you're crossing line or you're naturally low status but if it's um, someone who feels like they've got everything going for them, yes, I'm not super interested. I don't like. I never cross those lines. You and don't. You're very like. What you offend is general. I think you know this. I do these roasts now for stand up and clown. You did the show. You did my live direct show, and yeah. I roast the clowns there. But now I write out much more pointed roasts. My bar is. Nothing about the body, the gender, yeah. the orientation, the race, anything that's about society and culture, not interested. Anything that's about the clown that I see before. Yeah. The person. Are they overly ambitious? Are right. they inept? But also, like, it's a celebration of the clown. And it's hard because I want to come off as ruthless. So this is one of the hardest things I do through the month preparing for the show it is. But I, I think it's one of the most important things comedians need to learn. Like, I felt like 
in like the heyday of Sarah Silverman, everybody, myself included, were trying to tell offensive jokes. And you just, it is such a fine line. And honestly, I don't think it accomplishes that much. I have become much less interested in whatever, Republican, Democrat, or gay, straight. But what's interesting to me is like all of us poop, have sex, or have some relationship with our genitals. Like that's what's interesting to me, the humanity of it as opposed to the society of it. Like you you just said it. And I think that is so something I believe in so strongly. I was thinking about that era because a lot of the stuff going on in the world right now and Sarah Silverman. And it is this interesting thing too that back then there were a lot of female or female identifying comics. And the line they were crossing was, we can be just as awful. Disgusting as men. As men. I was so against it and I would get so angry. And I used to get mad at girls can do it, too, because I was like, there are things people who are socialized female don't naturally do. For example, we don't commit a ton of sexual assault. I don't want to be boys can do it. I don't want female executives. I want to tear down capitalism. Like, I totally relate to that. That is exactly it. It's like you're not trying to force your way into the broken system. You're trying to break the system. Yes. It, you know, this kind of loops back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Success. It represents Ding. success. And it's... I, I definitely have moments this week, for instance. Let me tell you what my week was like. I yeah, was at the comedy do. store on Wednesday first of all, night. I'm so sorry about that. This is the first time I've been there since the pandemic. Oh, got it. Okay. And it was a improvised stand-up show oh. in the belly room. So it was like this okay. little okay, okay. show. So I went there, literally got three standing ovations for this bit I did. I got a standing ovation in the middle and then a standing ovation at the end. And then the host came up and embraced me because they were so happy with the performance. Mm -hmm. And then they gave me another one. So- that's night one. Wow. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I'm working with Clown Zoo. D we devise a show in two nights, put it on Saturday night. So fun. You've guessed it. Many I miss it. Friends that I live with here, one of them is, a, is deep into clown like mask work and stuff. Also, I like interviewing his masks. I don't like wearing them. He's like, do you want to try it on? And I'm like, no, no, but I'd love to talk to Tartalia or whatever. <laughs> but I, okay, go ahead. And last night I did... Uh, silent clown with Ithmar Enriquez, who's like one of the best silent performers in the city. And I saw that shit show with Kim after and was like an hour of just- Oh, that just happened? Just happened yesterday. So it was an hour of green clowns. It was the horniest show. People were in like <laughs> like BDSM clothing and like this, uh, this uh, Kim Priest, who's this really fun like rock star clown. And they had like bananas in yogurt and ketchup. And they were like doing this weird- dildo act they destroyed the stage i had the best time when i woke up this morning and i was walking my dog there was still a moment where i was just like this sag strike ends should i try to get a manager i'm having the time of my life and still the system sucks me back even for a second i can't get away from it so the first show i ever crafted to try to sell was called mistress of ceremonies and it was essentially about a version of my life set in new york in the year 2000 because i don't I find now boring because it's too much on our phones. I am so, I really struggle with not controlling people's phone use around me. Okay. So coming here, my my managers were like, hey, what have we developed? Like, because I just sold my first TV show pre-COVID. It felt like, oh, scouts, you know, now I'm writing the show like, oh, we love Atlantic City. And I'm kind of going, well, what is this show that I'm trying to like redevelop? And I think the question of it for me is freedom versus safety as a performer. Like, do I want to be on SNL stealing bits from clowns, which is like a thing, right? I'm not big on like stealing, like I don't get mad about it, but like there have been a couple 
bits on SNL that are so lit. It's happened, yeah. Yeah, but you also go, you're on SNL, you're you're giving that big, big way bigger platform than what me at the clubhouse, you know what I mean? So, but I was like, what do you, what do I want? And going into, I auditioned for my first Beagle World show. The only other time I auditioned was more than 10 years ago for Absinthe. I remember being like, do I want this? Also, I have always been a super heavy drinker. And one of the things I've had to do in the show is stop drinking because you can't do it and do all these shows. Like I have to now kind of avoid our bar after the show because it's hard for me not to have a couple glasses of wine, talk to everybody. It, you can't do it. Your My voice can't do it. I'm old or not even that. Like you can't. It's an inflammatory substance. No one can. No, if you're singing, yeah, you can't do it. You just can't. And I think about it. Like what if I had become successful at 23? And I'm like, I don't know. But I also think that I'm kind of aging into a life where I like things that are, I like a lower dopamine lifestyle. Whereas before, I mean, I was freebasing dopamine every night, every night in New York City. There are stories that you've told me about your nightclub days. And they're <laughs> kind of like, what's funny about a scout story about the New York nightclub days is the stories cover months. <laughs> it's never a night. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're just like, I drank every night. Through yeah. August and September, I yeah. woke up in a subway. So they're like yeah. always Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. And but but I hear that part. I'm like, wow, you and I had that in wrestling, by the way, too. I mean, yeah, you, I would have been ostracized if I didn't go out after every single show yeah. and stay till the bar closed. That was how, as an announcer, I was welcome and accepted, and I liked it. So myself and one of my co-hosts that I live with were he's doing sixteen eight. He's intermittent fasting, right? And part of that is he can't drink anymore because it's not within his eating hours. It's been so interesting to talk to him about like having to give up not just alcohol, but being the social wagon. Like after the shows, I go to the bar, the security guys would tell, you know, oh, the captain's going to come out or and all three of the clowns in the show would all go out, have a few drinks. We'd have these adventures. And now the two of us are kind of going, we have to give it up. But for me, it's a real loss of identity. Like, I know everybody at my theater. I know all my ushers. I know all my porters. I'm friends with them. I know all my support staff. I know my waiters. Like, we're attached to a, a superfico, a restaurant. Drinking is such the currency of that. But even when everybody could go, my live show in L.A. moved outside over the pandemic, I started drinking because I was a soccer player and I'm a gay. <laughs> that was our communion. Like, we had a soccer party. We drank. On rugby, we'd have a drink up with the other team queer nightlife you go to nightlife you're around all your people you know all your people this isn't pre-internet i'm not that old but like it wasn't like now where you could go on instagram and see what was up like you wanted to go see what people were doing there was a theme party you wanted to see what people not war but like what happened whereas now you could kind of catch up on it but now alcohol is not as necessary of a communion first of all people want to smoke drugs second of all alcohol is expensive in bars so it's like being outside was this moment of like, okay, I can create the same pandemonium. Even now in my I'm the only person on stage show, we end it in a Coney Island wine bath. And it's meant to be a communion. It's literally meant to be a, not like Jesus communion, but like a coming together of everybody and like, let's share this thing. And I'm kind of going, how do I do it in a way that's not alienating to people who don't drink alcohol, which is corporate, which is, you know, bad bad for you, which is a neurotoxin. And it is so freaking hard to try to balance it. I uh, had a great experience with drinking and giving it up. I'll still drink a couple times a year. Yeah, you don't drink a ton. That was because of Juzo, Yoshida, when I was in Jetso. He doesn't drink. He's sober. 
before then, when I would do improv with my other teams and yeah, we would go out for drinks and I wasn't feeling great because I was older. I enjoyed the socializing, but I wasn't feeling great. And then yeah. when I started Jetso and he wasn't drinking in solidarity, I was like, I'm not going to drink. And then this discovery happened that I had so much more energy and time yeah. to focus on the joy of being on stage. My girlfriend and I will we'll go to like garbage stuff. Like we'll go to El Torito a couple times a year and have like bad margaritas. Yeah. But I, I haven't been pissed drunk in a decade. Like it's so true. Like I'm out with my friends. Oh, oh boy. Us. I know. You're looking at me like that's impossible. <laughs> I tried to give up drinking for a month. I made it less than two weeks. Well, Scout, we've reached the end. One, you've been a wonderful guest. There is one more thing that's going to happen that I didn't warn you about. Oh, great. I'm going to ask you a question right now, Scout. Okay. And that question is, what is clown? Oh, okay. But before you answer, you should know okay. something. If you give me a perfect answer, if okay. you give me answer <laughs> that I could say to my friends, family, and loved ones, like, this work that I'm doing, and they understand and they support and accept it, this podcast is over. <laughs> It's over because we have satisfied what I started this project. <laughs> if you miss the mark even by 1%, even by 1%, I will continue on. It's like I want to be able to take that either too seriously or not seriously enough. I can I only take that face. at face value seriously. Because in my this. head, I'm like, I know. Well, it's funny because you have the same look as when you were like, I was going to show my tits, but that's not going to be too exciting, right? And for 20 years, memorable. <laughs> That same like <laughs> pensive thinking eyes of like, what am I going to do here? All right, here we go. Okay. Scout, what is yes. clown? Clown is a form of interact, of curated interaction between someone on stage and someone watching the thing on stage that is generally in the spirit of levity or meant to make fun of any of the extremes. I don't think it's clown unless the audience is part of it. I don't think you can do clown to no audience. Even if you do it to a camera, the camera is the audience. Pretty good answer. Woo! Pretty good. You should be you should be very excited. You should be proud of yourself. But if you think I'm going to end this podcast because some old booze hound tells me what clown <laughs> is. God, people can give up alcohol, but not me. But I don't. But, okay. Uh, what a pleasure. Uh, Seriously. I, I miss you Come so much. Come to Atlantic City anytime. Well, I'm planning a trip in January. Oh, great. And I'm going to reach out to you. I want to bring my, my brother, my parents, yeah. and, and maybe we can hang out after the show and catch up a little Love bit. Love it. I know a great bar. I can get you 20% off any hotel in the Caesars. Uh, any hotel in family. the Caesars family. <laughs> that concludes our podcast. I'm going to put a link to a bunch of Scout stuff. Yeah. We didn't talk too much about it, but Scout's done multiple TV shows. And I have a I have a videos. Christmas album coming out for no oh, reason. I got Christmas asked album. to sing on a Christmas album, and so I have, I'll send you a thingy about it. The there are multiple albums, like. too. Well, do you, yeah. is it Bandcamp, Spotify? Like, what do you like to Oh, like? Spotify. I mean, they're all, yeah, Spotify is fine. But like I said, one of my most talented friends, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Thank you. What a joy. And also, there will be links in the episode notes to the show tonight, Halloween Spooktacular, Yay. Scary Clowns in Effect. A good lineup, dude. It's a really good lineup, and I've been working on a lot of dumb surprises. <laughs>
But until we speak again, my friends, thank you for listening and keep on clowning. That's how I end the show. I say keep That's on great. Clowning. Yeah. This was so nice. I know. Don't you ever wish like we could just be like, like maybe I'm just going to pretend start a podcast so I can talk to my friends one at a time for like an hour. I did that. <laughs>